1: Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday as we gather to worship and hear the Word of God proclaimed. You can learn more about our church at groundedandgrowingradio.com.
2: So First Thessalonians is a book that can be a little bit difficult for us to understand. And there are a couple of major reasons for that. The first is that um, whenever you come to a letter where Paul is writing to a church that he knows... It's a little bit like walking into a conversation that people are having, and you don't know what's happened in the conversation up to that point, and you step in and you try to piece together by what it is that people are saying, what it is that they've said in the past so that you can understand what they're talking about here in the present. First Thessalonians is a little bit like that. Paul had planted this church. He was the spiritual father of this church, and so there's some understanding that's going on between the, uh, the Thessalonians and Paul, some stuff that we miss out. I'm going to try to help us understand a little bit of that before we start. But it's easy to, to feel like we're entering into a conversation already happening, and it's easy to feel like this is a little difficult for us to grasp or understand because of this. The second reason I think that First Thessalonians is a little bit difficult for us to understand is that this, frankly, is a very pastoral letter. This is a letter that's being written from the, the, from the apostle, from the man who had birthed this congregation, who had planted this congregation. And he's not making an extended theological argument in the course of 1 Thessalonians. Sometimes it's a little bit easier for us to understand what a book is about if he's making a, a drawn-out theological argument, like he does in the book of Galatians, like he does in the book of Romans, like he does in a lot of other different places. But here, he's not making an extended argument. He loves this congregation that he was able to plant. He's so excited that they exist, that they are still there, that they are thriving in the midst of Thessalonica. And so he is rejoicing and then he is also giving them just some practical help for how it is that they are to live in the light of eternity. And so because of that it's it's hard for us to understand what's going on because there's not the same sort of extended argument that he's making throughout the pages of this book. But if we come to understand some of the context that led to the creation or the formation of the Thessalonian church, we can understand a little bit better what Paul is saying in the course of these pages. And I think I hope that the message of the book comes alive just a little bit as we realize what led to the formation of this church. And so first, I just want to give a little bit of context. Paul goes to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, and I've got a picture of all the places that he went to on his second missionary journey. This is small, I know, but you can see that the second missionary journey encompasses a whole bunch of parts of, uh, of the known world at the time. Paul was able, to, uh, was able to carry the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ using means that God had ordained. About, about uh, the second century before the coming of Christ, the Romans built an extended system of roads that were so well engineered and so well made that some of that road continues to exist today, and we've got a picture of that. So it was along this road that had just, you know, within a couple of hundred years been built that Paul was able to go along this missionary journey. Now before that happened, trips to these cities would have taken very extended periods of time. But because this road had been made, he was able to go from one end to the other in the course of about three weeks. It would have taken several months before the construction of this road. And so because of God's providence and the fullness of time, Christ Jesus came and came at a time where the spread of the gospel could happen very quickly. And... Um, and so I've got, a, I've got another picture of the cities along the road that was constructed here. I'm wondering if you pull that up. This is very small here. It looked much bigger when I sent it in. So you're going to have to bear with me here. You can see that. Well, you probably can't. So I'm just going to tell you, okay, about some of these things. If you can't see it, you can. See, uh, along this road are cities that you might recognize, like Philippi. The book of Philippians was written to them. You can see Thessalonica is there. The book of First Thessalonians was written there. You can see that Pella is right there. And so this road went all the way to Iowa, which is an incredible feat and, um, for the Romans to accomplish. Uh, so this is the way that, that Paul went. And, and you probably can't see it, but Thessalonica comes right in the middle of this road. And so it was a very central place, and that made for a really thriving economy. There was a massive market, the ruins of which still exist today. We have a picture of that here. This is the remains of the market that existed in Thessalonica. So well and, and magisterially constructed that that the arches are still standing today. You can still see where some of the, uh, the vendors would sell their goods. It was also a, a religious hub. It was a religious center. It was located right near Mount Olympus. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, the The Greek gods were said to exist on the top of Mount Olympus. So this was a very important religious area as well, and in Thessalonica, where this church was established, there were all sorts of temples to a wide variety of different deities, a wide variety of different gods. There were Roman temples to Roman gods, temples to Egyptian gods, temp- temples to Greek gods, and all of this was fine in the context of the city, so long as none of these religions made exclusive truth claims, they loved the fact that this was a center of so much religious life because it meant that there were all sorts of religious pilgrims that would come in and spend money in the city. And it was said by some historians at the time that Thessalonica was a city that wouldn't ever pass away because it was so centrally located, so firmly established, and so well resourced because of the tourism and because of the surrounding, uh, the surrounding area. However, if there were exclusive truth claims, that would become a problem for people that were operating within Thessalonica. And that gives us some sort of understanding of the trouble that was caused by Paul and his associates coming into the city and proclaiming the gospel. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17, and I'll show you some of that. You just have to turn back a little ways to Acts chapter 17. You can find it on page 1100 in your Bibles that are provided for you. And so again, here here is the story of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. And again, understand, this is a place with the worship of all sorts of different pagan deities that had no problem with a wide variety of of pagan worship. The chief worship in the city was actually emperor worship. And so long as none none of the other religions threatened emperor worship, everyone was fine. In fact, once a year, the people would have to offer some incense and say, Caesar is Lord. That was what they were called to do once a year. And so, keep that in mind as we take a look at what was happening in Thessalonica. This is Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. I'm just going to read through verse 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set, in this, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city of authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So do you see what happened there? Because Paul was preaching a gospel wherein he says, you know what? Caesar is not the final Lord. Jesus is Lord. The city had no tolerance for these preachers of the gospel. You're threatening our emperor worship. And so the city got in an uproar. And all of the political elites were deeply disturbed by the fact that this gospel message that was being proclaimed was one that said that Jesus is Lord. So hated was this message that the, that the leaders and the people of Thessalonica... Uh, Forced Paul and Silas to leave Until the brothers had them leave under the cover of night Paul and Silas went to Berea And Acts goes on And talks about how the people of Thessalonica Despised the message so much That they then followed them to Berea And forced them out of Berea And Paul and Silas had to go on the run From these people in Thessalonica What this means Is that this was a church That was founded by Paul and Silas In the midst of opposition And they had been in Thessalonica For a brief period of time I mean, we're, we're told the whole story of them coming and planting the church here in Acts chapter 17. So they'd been in the city for a brief period of time. They'd been preaching the gospel, some people had come to save in faith in Jesus, and then they were forced to flee under the cover of night, and then they were chased even from Berea by the people in Thessalonica. So they realized this is a church that, if it's going to continue, is going to exist in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of persecution. And so 1 Thessalonians makes it clear that Paul is not even sure that this church survives.
1: Today's message on grounded and growing in Christ will continue in just a moment. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, to listen to other messages from our audio ministry, or to make a financial gift of any amount, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. That's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This audio ministry is made possible by gifts from listeners like yourself, and we greatly appreciate all those of you who continue to make it possible to share this work with listeners across Chicagoland. Now let's return to today's message
2: take a look with me back at the book of 1st Thessalonians once again 1st Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 say this this is 3 4 and 5 for when we were with you we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as has come to pass and just as you know that's saying so so what we said that this This persecution was going to come to pass. You saw it come, and you know it personally too. And then verse five says this. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you see what Paul is saying there in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5? He's saying, I knew when I came to you that I was going to be persecuted. You know that persecution. And as I left you, I was afraid that faith wasn't even going to remain in Thessalonica. So afraid was I that my work was in vain, that nothing was going to remain there in Thessalonica, that I had to send somebody to find out if a church was still there. And so he sent Timothy to Thessalonica to find out if the church was still present. And by God's grace, the people in Thessalonica had borne up under persecution. They had remained faithful to Christ. Their faith continued. The church was still there in Thessalonica. And I think that you can sense some of Paul's joy as he opens this letter to the church in Thessalonica. And you can also sense... That he's not going to back away from still sort of putting his thumb in the eye of the religious authorities and the the political authorities of Thessalonica. Let's take a look at these three verses that begin the book of 1 Thessalonians once again. We're told, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is the the, uh, Greek word for Silas. So it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? He knows That Thessalonica had gotten worked up when they heard him proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as he writes to the Thessalonian church, he is undaunted. Remember, saints, that Christ is still Lord. Remember, saints of Thessalonica, that Caesar is not your ultimate king, but that Jesus is. Remember, Jesus Christ is Lord. I love that he does not back down from that. And then he speaks a word to the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Grace here is the fountain from which peace flows. And he speaks a word of truth here as all of God's word is true. And he says to all of you who are in Christ Jesus, To all of you that belong to God the Father. To all of you who trust that Jesus is Lord more than Caesar is Lord. To you, I want to remind of the grace of Jesus. This is really beautiful. There's a reason that when we start our worship services together that the minister always comes up and speaks a word of grace and peace. Because it's a reminder to us. This is the way that every letter in the New Testament begins. And it's a beautiful reminder to us. That all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Have received his grace. We're joined to God. To Christ Jesus. God is our father. Christ Jesus is our Lord. And that means we've received his grace. And we've been saved. And to all of us here who trust in Jesus all of us who have known the grace of Christ Jesus and salvation, to you there is peace as well. Just like there was to the Thessalonian church. Grace to you and what flows from that is peace. Grace and peace. And then Paul goes on and you can again, you can see that he is excited. He says, we give thanks to God for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Praise God for the prayers of the apostle for this church that he planted. Remembering before our God and Father three things. Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And So let's take a look at these three things. And this is the substance of our taking a look at our text today. He gives thanks for three things, this work of faith, for the labor of love, and for their steadfastness and hope, their steadfastness of hope. Three things, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. Let's take a look first at the work of faith. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. This shows us something, and it shows us something important We are saved by grace through faith. But the type of saving faith by which we are joined to Christ Jesus is the type of faith that says, you know what, I've been saved because of nothing I've done. I've been saved by sheer grace, and I have been saved to work. I've been saved to put the work in, a true faith. A saving faith is a saving faith that leads to work. Here's the way that the book of James puts it in the New Testament. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is, poor, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. That's what we're told in the book of James, in the New Testament. A saving faith, a true saving faith, is the sort that works. A true saving faith is the sort of faith that doesn't just rely on simple, petty aphorisms. Oh, I can see that you're in need. I, I wish you the best. I can see that you don't have clothing sufficient for the day. I can see that you don't have any food. Well, I wish so much that you'll be well clothed and well fed. No, what James says is that if we have a true faith, we're the sort of person that, that, that loves by our actions and our truth and, and loves by our works. What James tells us is that we have faith and that faith is not accompanied by Christian action, by Christian works, then we have a dead faith. A living faith, a living saving faith works. Again, that's not to say that you're saved by works. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, but you're saved by grace alone through the type of faith that motivates you to action, that it motivates you to try to get to know your Savior better, that motivates you to care for his children who are in need, That motivates you to work. True faith works. And he knows that the work of the Thessalonians. That shows that they have a true faith. And so he gives thanks to God. That this church is still there. And that they have a true faith. A true faith that works. Let's continue on. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father. Your work of faith. And labor of faith love your work of faith and your labor of love here what paul is doing under the inspiration of the holy spirit is he is intensifying the thing that he just said the type of word that's translated labor is a word that means work that that carries with it intense exhaustion he's saying i know that you exhaust yourself because you love the brothers and the sisters I know that you exhaust yourself in serving others because you are filled with the love of God. I know that you are willing to go weary to bed each day because you are filled with the love of the Lord and therefore you love each other and this love motivates you to serve each other. The Christian life, again, is a life wherein we are given the rest of Christ Jesus, where we are spoken to a word of grace and peace where we are saved not from anything that we have done ourselves. And it's also a faith where it says, I'm gonna work all the harder knowing that this is not the cause of my salvation, but knowing that I've been saved because of nothing I've done, I I wanna please my king. I wanna please my Lord. And so I will labor in love. Sometimes we can, we can trivialize this, right? Like we get a, there's one pastor who says we get a cup of tea for someone and we call it a labor of love. And it might be a part of it, right? But if that's the extent of our love, well, that's not particularly laborious, is it? How is it that you are going to exert yourself as a result of the love that has been worked in you by Christ Jesus? First Thessalonians continues, We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He does it again. Christ Jesus is the Lord, he says. And the third thing that Paul gives thanks to, for this church of the Thessalonians, he gives them thanks. He gives thanks for the fact that they are steadfast in hope. What does this mean? It means that this church in Thessalonica has an enduring hope, one that can't be overturned, one that can't be defeated, one that will never spoil or fade, one that can't go away. The church in Thessalonica has the same hope that you and I have today. The hope that Christ Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering death, proving that he is Lord. The eternal hope that the Thessalonian church had is and was that Christ Jesus is Lord and that Christ Jesus is coming back. Church, that is your hope today too. Christ Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead for you. Christ Jesus is Lord. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and Christ Jesus will return. That's an indestructible hope that you have. It was this hope that they had, this hope in Christ Jesus that did not disappoint them. It was this hope that redemption was theirs in Christ Jesus that made the Thessalonian church able to stand up under persecution and hardship. It was this hope that enabled the Thessalonian church to to see death and be undaunted. We know that that's one of the things that they were dealing with. Paul talks about in chapter three about how they're dealing with with persecution and tribulations. He talks a little bit later about how they're dealing with death. And he speaks to them an encouraging word. He says, you can mourn with hope because those who fall asleep in the Lord, those who die in the Lord, they're not gone forever. They're not extinguished by death. No, instead they're brought through death into the presence of the Savior. He says the dead in Christ are going to be raised first, that when the Lord Jesus returns, that we who are still living when Christ returns are going to be caught up along with those who have died before us. We're going to meet our Savior As he brings the new heavenly Jerusalem down to this earth. This is an indestructible hope. And it enables you to be steadfast. Just like the Thessalonians were steadfast. As they faced hardship. As they faced trials. As they faced persecution. As they even stood in front of death. They were undaunted and steadfast. Because their hope was indestructible. And so is yours today. Do not be afraid of anything that this world can or will throw at you. Do not be afraid even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Christ Jesus has you. He's claimed you. He's redeemed you. You're his. He's given you eternal promises. And therefore, you can be steadfast. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is coming back.
1: My prayer is that the Lord speaks to you through his word